Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello and welcome to Dark Night of the Podcast. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. Troy, thank you as always for being here with me to discuss another title. Thank you. Did I have a choice? I mean, you're, you got a big move coming up. You could easily have pulled like a, like you could have like a body double. You could have an inf- like an inflatable. It'd be very like Home Alone. It'd be like a mannequin on strings on the other side of the computer. Uh, and this, I would just talk the whole time. I wouldn't even know. <laughs> I wouldn't even know that you weren't there. I would just talk the entire time because I never shut up. But uh, yeah, no, I'm excited to have another episode because I know in a few weeks, there's a lot coming up. You're going to be moving. And I know you're going to need a little personal time. So I'm treasuring these moments. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there'll be about a week, not next week, the following week, the week of what, June 13th, that I will be sort of out of commission because I am making a move cross country yet again. But hopefully, folks, hopefully this is the last move I make in it, hopefully for the rest of my life because I fucking hate moving. But I'm moving from Iowa to Las Vegas, Nevada. Super excited for that. But there's, there'll be that week that I'm going to be out of commission. So we are trying to, we're going to get everything out. That week, you may be treated to a special Patreon episode. We may post one of our Patreon episodes that week so that you're not missing out on content. But we unfortunately won't have like an original review that week. But we'll come back strong once I'm there and get settled and everything. We have a uh, just a great lineup of films we're covering so, and it also give you a kind of a peek of what we do on the Patreon page. So you, so you can listen to what we do and you see that we, you know, we, we take it seriously. We, we try to make the content as enjoyable as possible. And speaking of Patreon, Roger, we have to give a shout out. We got a new patron <gasps> after oh all God. these months. Someone joined the cult. Someone joined the cult. I'm excited. Who is it? After all these ones, so we want to thank Maddie Goller, I think your last name is. If I'm mispronouncing it, I apologize. But Maddie, we thank you so, so much for joining the Patreon. Hope you'll find the content worth it. We have lots of stuff up there already. I keep We keep plugging away at it week after week. But we really implore you to at least go to Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast just to scroll through and see how many how many episodes we've posted so far we're up to almost 25 bonus episodes you can listen to for as little folks as two dollars a month that is less than half of the price of a gallon of gas i mean two dollars pennies it's stacks of pennies over a month we're not talking about we're talking a month save your pennies girls when you're getting change from the gas pump and give it to us gays it's gays it's gay pride month (laughs) happy pride by the way happy pride what 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 better title to talk about honestly to to kick off pride than what we have in store for you today but i do want to say troy a first of all if you did see say that 
lovely Maddie's name wrong. Maddie, let us know. We will say it again because we are professionals. And if we if we're mispronouncing it, we're at least going to get it right. We're going to say it right. So let us know. We'll make make uh, make amends <laughs> for any wrongs that we have said uh, to make sure that we get it pronounced properly. And that goes for all of you. So uh, we love you guys. We appreciate that you are taking the time and the pennies uh, to donate to us each month and the the material i think really is i mean not to brag troy not to not to like honk my horn here but some of my favorite episodes are patreon episodes i'm going to say it right now and the fact that we are going to release some piece of patreon something here in the few next few weeks so troy can be given proper time to you know relocate it, i really think that's kind of a treat because i don't think people know well, honestly, just how extensive these episodes are. They're basically just like another one of these two-hour-long episodes. You get another one. Uh, and it's, the material's just as good, I promise. Troy and I never shut the fuck up the whole time. Uh, and I think it's quite entertaining. I like to listen to myself. Uh, I hope you guys like to listen to us, too. But I really am excited to give people a, a full-length taste of some of the Patreon magic we've come up with. I think that's something exciting to look forward to. You know what else is exciting to look forward to, Troy? Samantha Eggers' hair. Troy, oh my God. And the only reason Troy says this, guys, I'm going to be honest, is because right before we even started this, I was like, God damn it, Troy. <laughs> Let's take a minute to talk about Samantha Eggers' perfect hair. I mean, you want to talk about gay pride? Check out that big ass <laughs> teased up hair. That's some good fucking hair. Well, we have to acknowledge Samantha Eggers for being the icon that she is because she is also in one of our, I know, favorite 80s horror films that we covered on the podcast curtains that beautiful woman really is i'm i'm coming to find a favorite of mine of of that era her style of acting is i mean she goes she both has moments where she goes kind of big off the walls bonkers and other times she's very very restrained and subdued and some of her acting choices especially as she starts to lose her shit and oh the shit that is lost by the end of this movie she still has these very like unique interesting very well thought out uh responses and reactions and even like the way she responds with her eyes at times uh it just shows what a a very skilled actress this woman is and i am aching chomping at the bit to see more of her so listeners i will say right now if anyone has a samantha eggers title that they're going to want to suggest, please leave us a comment. Let us know because I'm looking for more good Samantha Egger material. Well, and if you want to hear our review of Curtains, it's episode 46, and we had a very special guest with us. Remember, our guest co-host that week was Brandon Paris, one of the writers and directors of the fabulously queer slasher film Death Drop Gorgeous. So if you haven't listened to it, go back to episode 46, and you can hear us, I'm sure, gloat over Samantha Egger in that episode as well, because she is a delight on screen. You know, Roger, she is an Oscar-nominated actress. She got a Best Actress Academy Award nomination when she was only 19 years old. That's wild. Uh, for for the film The Collector, yeah. so which is about a serial killer who abducts her. And yeah, it's a pretty intense little film made in the 60s. So, I mean, she's bringing that Academy Award-nominated acting style to this film. Oh, for sure. 
So I, I love, I, yeah, I mean, she's, she's a, she's a treasure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and like, honestly, like the big draw for me to, to delve into this title is be, it was initially because there's been so much buzz about Cronenberg lately. Uh, what with crimes of the future getting such a heavy push right now. Um, it, it, it's, it felt like it started with a spark and now it's become an explosion. All I see is crimes of the future, people's responses to crimes of the future, people walking out of crimes of the future, people praising crimes of the future. I'm intrigued. I definitely want to see it. But I also was like, okay, I get it. Cronenberg has something new coming out that's fantastic. I want to revisit some of his his classic material. So when I do finally get my eyes on this film, I want to see like really how things have changed and evolved for him as a filmmaker over such a long stretch of time. You know, uh, there's been a lot of room for growth, but I love that he's always kept a very unique style that is definitively Cronenberg. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm excited to get into t- discussing this film. It had been a minute since I'd seen it, but this film definitely has a few uh, scenes that once you see them, I think are going to stick with you because I remember specifically a couple scenes from this film to this day, and I hadn't seen this film forever. So it is a very, you know, classic Cronenberg film. And I, I if we haven't told you what the film title is yet, we are covering the 1979 David Cronenberg. I, I, w- I will definitely say classic, The Brood. And I will definitely say classic as well. Um, and while it's it's very, again, definitively Cronenberg in that it takes its time, it has its own pace, at times it's a little sluggish. When this film hits, it fucking hits. Uh, and it hits with uh, style and flair and honestly, just a very unique and bold approach to the genre. I can't think of a lot of films I can relate this title to. It, it is very much in its own realm. It's definitely a body horror film to, to a certain extent, but there's so much more to this movie than, you know, the the, the moments of gore and def, uh, deformation and so forth. And that certainly does exist over the course of the film. I mean, there are some moments that are just shocking, but this movie doesn't depend on that. It just kind of throws it at you when you're not really expecting it. And you're like, holy fuck, what am I looking at? This is crazy. This is David Cronenberg. <laughs> it's it's part of the brilliance of the film is you don't really know what type of film you're watching until about the last 10, 15 minutes of the film. It plays out very much like a, you know, almost like a, almost like a sort of a slasher film, but instead of the villain being like a Jason or Michael Myers, it's these rain coated little deformed children. I, I did get a lot and we're going to, we'll get right into the review, but I did get a, I will say as watching this film, I got a lot of don't look now vibes from this film. Mm, yeah. The bright raincoat or the bright raincoats, the, the, the bright snow suits, these little uh, deformed children are wearing and you see them in the background. You see the bright color of the, ch- of the children. It reminded me of very much of don't look now, which we covered as well. So uh, I got a lot of that vibes from this film, but this film is unlike probably anything that I've seen. You've seen that we've probably covered before. I mean, uh, so I, I guess we should get into covering ourselves <laughs> With the brood. Yeah. I, I, I need to say going into this to really establish <laughs> the tone and what to anticipate. There are some films that I view in my life that make me think, oh, Lord, I am so relieved I do not have children. And this is definitely a film <laughs> that makes me 
never, never want to have children. Uh, the potential for issues and problems and mayhem and, I mean, honestly, apparently murder. It is just <laughs> there's there is too much to deal with. The kids in this movie are not only terrifying in their actions, but honestly terrifying because they're just deformed creatures as well. So that's pretty horrifying. But but yeah, this is this is a dry, dramatic, and completely void of humor. It is a humorless film. And it feels very of the era, which is not like a criticism from me on my part. It's just, again, it, it's very much Cronenberg. And, and I think he is he really came into his own in this era. And I think in some ways it allows him to shine spectacularly the material was very personal to him he actually wrote this script as a as a consequence of a divorce and custody battle with his ex-wife so a lot of what's poured into this script is very 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 personal for him and i think it it shows quite a bit Uh, i think the material definitely uh, you know uh, yeah on the surface this is a horror film about well, on the surface, it's about a horror film about little children murdering people with hammers, but it goes much deeper. Uh, there's a lot of underlying themes and elements about relationships, about a family connection. There's a lot going on here, and you could tell that you know this was written out of possibly angst. Um, and I wouldn't say that it is you know blasphemous to say that he felt a lot of angst when he wrote this script because of what he was dealing with, with his ex-wife. There's a lot to this film. So we're going to try to dissect it as, as, as best as possible. I mean, it, there's a lot going on, a lot going on. Yeah. It opens on a, a weird note too. Like it, it opens, like it's not subtle. It throws you right into like a psychoanalyst study. <laughs> of, and and, and it, mm-hmm. you don't really understand exactly what happening right off the bat like this is a film that i think a few revisits does it well just because because there's so much going on just like what you said troy you've got to get used to some of the dialogue some of the things they're talking about uh the whole idea of what they approach with this whole psychoplasmics study that one of the focal characters the doctor hal uh is is overseeing and, and exactly like what plays into that again, very Cronenberg. Uh, it, it's it, it's kind of hard to grasp it on a first time viewing. At least I I feel that's the case. It really does you well to go back and get a, get a feel for the material and the story it's trying to tell. I agree. I agree. The first my first viewing of this, I I kind of struggled with being engaged with it, and as I was watching, I'm like, oh my god, how am I going to? be able to take notes over this film. I was, I was like spacing out during these lengthy dialogue portions. Uh, I would find, I would catch myself like totally spacing out. and like not knowing what the hell just happened. It, it wasn't until you get to that final 10 minutes and it's everything is revealed that I think then you absolutely are encouraged or you, you definitely feel like you want to go back and watch the entire film again to see exactly how everything played out and to see if you can put the pieces together because the pieces are there in in spades you just have to pay attention and i think this is a film that definitely 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 warrants a second or third viewing to catch everything i watched it three times before i even started to try to take notes on it i mean yeah that opening scene we open with doctor like you said hal raglan 
who is a psychotherapist. He is on stage with a patient of his named Michael, and they are performing this, what do you want to say, this role play where the doctor, Dr. Raglan, is acting like he is Michael's father, and he's trying to draw out of Michael all of these frustrations that Michael has had with his father when he was a child. Um, And there's a lot of themes of like, what it means to be a man uh, because Dr. Raglan, Dr. Raglan even teases him about the fact that he is weak and that they should have, instead of his parents naming him Michael, they should have named him Michelle. Uh, and then he starts like screaming at him saying, you could be daddy's little girl. You, you weak, you know, you're just a weak, bumbling, crying little girl. And he just refers to him as Michelle. It gets very uncomfortable. And then he encourages Mike to show him his anger and to to bring it out. So Mike rips his shirt off and he's covered in all of these lesions that I'm assuming we assume are self-inflicted, correct? You know, right away, I I was actually going to present a question to you because even in watching this film multiple times over, there's so many different ways that I feel the material can be interpreted. And without wanting to be like, I'm going to go read the Wikipedia and find it out that way. I'm like, no, I want to try to genuinely, I want, I'm trying to like genuinely go on this journey and, and develop the story for myself as far as what I'm trying to assume the story is, is, is telling the lesions in my mind is this kind of whatever this study is, he's doing within this sequence, um, this whole, uh, psychoplasmic study for my assumption is is whatever it is that they're doing specifically delving into these uh personalities and so forth is it causing almost like a physical reaction is that why this is becoming such a big study for him because if you notice one thing that everybody has in common and one character that uh comes into play especially jan the one that's having the the cancer bout um or the, the issue with his cancer um, from what I gathered and assumed is, is that it's proven that this study that Hal's doing is actually proving to be, uh, causing these lesions and what ends up being cancerous. Is that what you took away from this? I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that I, mean, I meant like self-inflicted for the, from the, I, the, from the standpoint of like bringing out this, like acting out on this rage in a continuous manner. Yeah, I don't know if these lesions are supposed to be like self-inflicted or if they're a result or, or if they're a result of just putting so much effort, physical effort into releasing the rage that the body then is having this uh, very physical reaction. So it's not like him physically taking his fingers and digging them into his skin or taking an object and digging into the skin. It's just the amount of energy and, and, and stress he's putting on his body trying to get this rage out through these doctor scenarios that he's having with Dr. Raglan, if that is what's causing these lesions and abrasions to appear. Because I think it's really important to, to know what psycho, um, what this whole technique is. The doctor is basically forcing these patients to create physical manifestations of their emotions and their rage. He's doing that by, he tells them, show me your anger, let it out, uh, let it out, work through it so that they are having a very physical response to these sessions, this therapy session. So for example, Mike has obviously has issues with his father. So with Dr. Raglan pretending to be his father and then belittling him as his father, Michael has this 
angry, angry reaction. And the doctor is just basically forcing him to show it physically. And that's the point he rips his shirt off and he's like, look, look, here it is. Here it is. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it is very much implied that it is either a a physical reaction to the, to this therapy or the patients themselves get so into it that they may do it, harm themselves. I, I, I don't know. It's one of those things, like you said, it's, I guess it's up for interpretation. It's never really fully explained. Uh, yeah. I mean, and that's, again, I think that's a very uh, much a, a Cronenberg trait. He likes to leave things kind of open-ended, vague, hard to decipher. You know, the, this has all of the classic traits, again, of what makes it a Cronenberg film. This whole psychoplasmics practice, um, you're given bits and pieces of what exactly it is. It's discussed in depth amongst uh, characters, between characters who already have an understanding of it. Um, They don't necessarily do uh, a lot of effort, put forth a lot of effort towards constructing like from the bottom up the groundwork of what makes this study work and why so much focus is being put into it. Um, But the effects of what come from it are definitely starting to be explored because one thing that is pretty clear is that everybody who is involved, at least all of the focal characters that we meet that are involved with this study do start to show a physical manifestation of of this ailment of whatever happens. We see it in this character, Mike, he's covered in sores. We then see it, like I said, with the character of Jan soon, who is now has cancer and wants to basically have a lawsuit go against Hal for this whole study because he's going to basically claim that it, it caused his cancer. Uh, and then we then eventually come to see it in another character in a very extreme um, manifestation of, of what's come about from her participating in these studies. Um, but yeah, the scene uh, right away, we're given this very kind of uncomfortable sequence between these two characters, very emotional. I mean, he's not scared to just jump right into the messiness of it all and, and dig into this character's trauma um, and, and just emotional distress. This character of Mike, we see him a few times. He's clearly unstable. He's clear, clearly suffering from something. Um, and, and you really kind of just get that full force in this first scene. It's an uncomfortable scene to watch. Yeah, and, and it's he's doing it in front of an audience. He has invited p- different people, different scholars from around the, the state or the city or whatever to come and watch him in action. And while they're sitting in the audience, there's a couple of them. They're just in awe. They're like, oh, my God, he's a genius. He is such a genius. That man's a genius. And then they're they're released. They, they leave. They get out on the bus. And then we are introduced to kind of our main protagonist of the film, Frank Carveth, who is played by... A very dapper looking, in this film anyways, Art Hindle. Oh, he's handsome. He is. And I never, I did not really pay much attention to him in Black Christmas. He plays Claire's boyfriend in Black Christmas, the original Black Christmas. Uh, I didn't really pay much attention to him. But in this film, he, he does. He's very handsome. He's very dapper. I was just drawn to his character. A very relatable character. He's not over the top. He's not, you know, I mean, I think he plays this particular character very naturally. His reactions are very natural. I really, really felt a connection to this character. I really liked his character a lot. Oh, he's great in this film, to be honest. And he really, I mean, he is by by far the, the main protagonist that you're following. Um, and he is well-intentioned. He is 
uh, very thoughtful of his daughter. He is a very likable male lead. Um, and in a genre where, you know, uh, oftentimes you see females kind of taking on the roles uh, that are opposite the children, at least to that, that's kind of what we're accustomed to. I do appreciate that this film stemmed from an era where you did get a, a kind of like a, pleth- um, a plethora of of strong male leading characters in these roles, at least, you know, within the 70s and the 80s. We had that with um, Don't Look Now. And I think that this movie does this very well. And another movie that had a really strong male protagonist and a, and a kind of a similar style and format to a certain extent is the 70s remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which Art um, Hindell was also in. He played Jeffrey. So and, uh, he does have a rather impressive lineup of genre films, if you think about it. He has this. He has the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake, which is considered to be the best interpretation and adaptation of that film. And then he also has Black Christmas. I mean, like, those are three heavy hitter titles within the genre. That's very impressive to me. Yeah, very impressive. So he, after he leaves this, because he's one of the people that gets to view this session that the doctor just performed with, with Michael. So he gets his little daughter, Candace, little blonde Candace, uh, and takes her home. And as he's given her a bath that evening, he notices that her back is full of welts and bruises. Uh, so he furiously goes back to Dr. Raglan's office to confront him about this. And we, fi- we, what we find out is that his wife, Nola's ex-wife, wife, ex-wife is in this hospital. She's one of Dr. Uh, Raglan's patients. And he basically tells the doctor, hey, I am not bringing my daughter here ever again because my wife abused her. No more visitation. Dr. Dr. Reglin tries to talk him out of it. He's like, you know, that, that as part of your you know agreement, she's entitled to visitation and it's just going to cause way more problems for you and for her in this point of her treatment if you keep her daughter away from her. He's like, well, until... You know, you let me talk to her about this whole situation. I am not bringing her. And he storms off, goes to his lawyer the next day to ask about, you know, this whole situation. And his lawyer, his lawyer even tells him, no, you can't do that because her lawyers are going to be on you just like that. It's part of your, uh, your, your divorce agreement. She gets visitation rights. So he's kind of in a bind. I do love like, what right away this is very early in the film but already this is this element here of of this development with his trying to take the full custody of of the daughter if you look at the overall structure of the story and and what happens this is such a pivotal moment um regarding nola and the kind of emotional journey that she's about to go on and what comes from it the physical manifestation of her uh, overall distress and just her kind of just breaking down. This is key. This whole moment is very key. He, he's trying to re- deprive her of her daughter. He's trying to completely remove her daughter from her life. And she has a response to that. And in many ways, she has a physical response to that. Uh, it, it causes a huge uh, series of events to start unfolding that become more and more fantastical. But this is a very, um, when you talk about this story being inspired by uh, his actual experiences going through a divorce and 
the custody battle with the children. My God, that makes so much sense, Troy, because this really is kind of just a an, an artistic in- rendition interpretation of somebody's own inner angers and emotions coming out amidst an, an experience like this, something so gut-wrenching is going through a horrible divorce. Everyone involved suffers. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to the child and the custody and the story that this is telling, it's really a, such an interesting interpretation of that. He does uh, He does actually, before he leaves his lawyer's office, he does actually come up with this plan. He runs it by his lawyer. He's like, hey, what if I can prove that Raglan is a, is a fraud? And this whole therapy that he uses is is a fraud that would probably help my case right and his lawyer is like yeah you are absolutely on the right track um he goes to school he picks up his little daughter candy from school her teacher is there uh what is her name miss mayor and she's like you know i want to talk to you at some point about what's going on at school and about how candy's been acting you know this candy character we are introduced to this daughter who i guess is a prominent character throughout the film you know, but she doesn't really have much to do. Uh, she's not a child character that's going to grab you and engage you and pull at your heartstrings. You know, you think about other films that have like a, a divorce theme that runs through them with a child as kind of at the forefront of the struggle, obviously, if it's a custody battle. Like I'm thinking of like Kramer versus Kramer or uh, the one with Drew Barrymore, Reconcilable Differences, where you are kind of drawn into this character's experience and their uh, feelings about their parents going through this struggle or this battle to to win them as a prize, so to speak, to get custody of them. This little girl, you know, and I, I, I doesn't really have much to do. And I was never really felt like I gave a shit about her. She doesn't really have much dialogue throughout the film, except daddy. Uh, she's just not given a lot to do. And so it was just difficult for me to care about the whole concept of him wanting custody of her so bad because you just never really like, I, okay, it's this, it's this kind of moody little girl. Like, I don't I wouldn't want her around my house. So I, that if I had to pick out one thing about the film that I think, oh, could have been slightly improved, I would think like more scenes with maybe this little girl in giving her more to do and more to react to in terms of what's going on around her. Uh, they almost go there with the scene with her grandmother, but then it's cut super short. You know, Troy, I, I will say this. And I didn't really even notice this until I got to a certain point in the movie. And I, I was re- actually very receptive to this child's interpretation of this character. And I'll tell you why. I think this is one of the most accurately like uncomfortable portrayals of a child I've seen in a film in a long time. I know we, I, I love seeing like a, a you know a, a performance from a child that's like you know really well at handling the dialogue or you know really nails the emotions and so forth like really gets like checks off all the boxes. This kid definitely does does less than a lot of the kids we've seen in some of these movies, but. The moment she has, she feels so authentically just like young and awkward and uncomfortable. Everything she does seems very realistic to me. When kids are in moments where they're like scared or traumatized or terrified, they shut down. You know, they, they go mute. A lot of times they don't really know how to react. And I think 
the times in this film in which she was directed to remain silent um, actually seems very believable to me. But there are a few moments where she does have big reactions or she does like break down crying to her father. Um, and I think these little moments, she actually gives some very strong performances, uh, especially her final like 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. She has some moments that are kind of like bone chilling. Um, and, and I just feel for her because she feels like so, like I said, authentically just like this young, innocent little kid. She's got to be like, what, four, five? Um, and she's terrified. And, and I, I buy it. I believe it. She almost gives me like a hint of Carol Ann vibes. I know it's the bangs. It's got to be the bangs. But aside from that, just like the whole like wide eyed, like, oh, what's happening? Like, you know, like it, it, I like her. I really do. I think she's very believable. She is good in the role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's very good at being awkward and just uncomfortable on screen. And yeah, her last, the last 10 minutes of the film where she has to, you know, amp up the acting ability and act, amp up the fear quite a bit. She definitely nails it. It's just, I didn't get. I don't know. I just didn't get much personality from the kid. And I guess, you know, it is, I guess you make a valid point if she's going through uh, some horrible things in her life. But even before like the scene with her grandmother happens, she's just doesn't seem like to be a very uh, happy and engaging little girl. And I see why her parents are divorced. Yeah, I get it. Okay. I just, I'm not saying she's bad. She's she's really good in the film. It's just I'm happy she's not one of the annoying children that we've seen. Like, no, she's not. Like she's not one of the annoying children. I'm not saying she's not annoying. I just wish she was maybe given a little more to do. And that is actually to the benefit of the actress because I do think that she was really, really great in this role. Um, I would have liked to have seen more from her, um, particularly maybe like confronting her mom. You never really get a scene between her and the mother Samantha egg or Nola character. Um, that would have been interesting to see. Absolutely. Yeah. So he does take, uh, Frank does take candy to visit her grandmother who, okay, Roger, this is supposed to be Nola's mother, right? Yes. This woman looks about 30 years younger than Samantha Egger. I mean, she does look at, th- at first. I thought it was, I thought it was Frank's new girlfriend. I was like, Oh, he's my <laughs> I was like, uh, wait, that's her mom? Looking good. Looking good. She looks younger than her daughter. I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, her daughter is in, is in a mental facility, yes. like, to be blunt. Though wearing some good good turtlenecks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she takes her to visit her mom or her grandmother, whose name is what? Julianne. And Julianne is very thankful and grateful to Frank, because she's like, I'm so glad you're letting me see my grandchild because this is something Nola would never let me do. So little little dialogue that reveals that there is conflict between Nola and her mother, which we cut to the a scene with Nola. The first time we see her on screen, Samantha Egger and all her big wavy haired glory having this session with Dr. Raglan where he is pretending to be candy. And he's like, mommy, mommy, you hurt me, mommy. And she's like, oh, don't be silly, Candy. I didn't hurt you. Mommies don't hurt your ch- their children. He's like, they don't. And she's like, well, some mommies do. Fucked up mommies. I like how she spits up that line, too. And she's like, my mom was a fucked up mommy. She beat me and threw me down the stairs. And again, he's encouraging her. He's like, okay, yes, 
Get angry. Now show me that angry. Go all the way through it. Show me, show me. This is the first time you're introduced to this Nola character, right? So it's it's kind of another pivotal f- moment in the film. I will point out right away, I was floored by Samantha Eggers acting just in this tiny little 40-second scene. Her and Oliver Reed together, I think it's some pretty sizzling stuff, to be honest with you. It's electric. The performances in this film across the board, I, I really don't think there's anyone who's bad at all. I think there's a few performances that are a little bit bigger because the era, again, like the late 70s, early 80s, there is a certain style. But uh, for the most part, the major players here, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of um, depth to these characters, a lot of emotions that they're going through. Um, and it's really some masterful acting. Very, very, very uh, elegant, high-end performances, uh, high-scale cinema. I mean, the, the performances come through and they transcend. So as he's, as he's egging her on to show her anger and to make it surface, we cut back to Candy and her grandma looking at some pictures. And Candy finds one of Nola when she was a child in the hospital. And Candy is like, this is my favorite picture of my mommy. And, you know, Juliana, the grandma's like, oh, why is that? And she's like, she just looks so nice. And then she's looking at more pictures and she notices that there's a lot of pictures of her mother, Nola, in the hospital when she was a child. So she asks her grandmother, she's like, why was mommy in the hospital all the time? The grandmother's like, well, she had a, a, an unexplained condition that she used to wake up as a child and she would be covered in these bumps that the doctors couldn't even explain what they were. At this moment, you hear some commotion in the kitchen. You hear like glasses breaking and and things hitting the floor. And she's like, well, I think I probably didn't put the dishes away that well. So I better get up and go, go to the kitchen. And literally in the kitchen, we are seeing like plates falling off the shelves, uh, bottles of vinegar falling off and splattering on the floor. And the poor grandmother goes into the kitchen and sees this mess and then looks up and there is this dwarf child, for lack of a better term, up on the cupboard and it jumps down on her and starts beating the shit out of her with a freaking meat tenderizer. I mean, there's a, it's brutal. It's quick. But what we do see is is quite impactful. So uh, Juliana like enters the kitchen and she's you know she just sees all of the broken dishes and everything and she's like kind of in shock because she doesn't understand exactly what's going on and it takes her a moment to look up and realize that this figure is like looming behind her atop the cupboard um and she obviously is in no way prepared for it she doesn't expect it so she just looks at it for a moment like like Obviously, what she's seeing is shocking. Um, and then it jumps down on her very, in a very animalistic way and starts to, to beat her. Um, and it's very violent. It's very brutal. It just it just happens, you know? She's in no way able to defend herself. They do a really good job of like kind of like building up to this moment. But when it happens, it does feel very just like, boom. It hits. She's no chance to fight back whatsoever. She's dead. And uh, it's shocking. It really is like I was not prepared for it. The first time I saw this, I was very taken aback. Oh, yeah. by this. I mean, and it's brutal. Like you, you see the thing hit her in the head multiple times with this metal meat tenderizer. Uh, and it's just and these can we can we talk about the, the squeals that these children make when they attack? 
like very oh, yeah. fair, very feral, like squeals and cries that are pretty disturbing. So Candy hears this commotion and she goes into the kitchen and finds her mother, her grandmother's dead body laying there on the floor in a pile of blood or head bashed in. And as she's looking at it, she looks up at the stairwell and hears the thing squeal and you see it in the, you see it grip the, uh, the banister and look at her and then it takes up off the, up the stairs and, and disappears. Oh, that shot really like made me jump when she turns around and it's just there in the stairwell, like looking at her and you can tell that the face is kind of off, but you, you have not yet really gotten a clear look at the face. So you don't know exactly what to expect. It's, it's very unsettling. And it leaves a, it leaves bloody handprints all over the, the banister. I think what's more unsettling is this next scene. What we kind of, what we kind of find out because Frank is at work. He gets a call from the police sergeant who tells him you need to come down to the station. Something happened. Frank goes to the station. He's told point blank. Your mother-in-law was murdered. And we found your daughter unharmed sleeping upstairs. Frank is like, well, is she okay? And he's like, well, yeah, actually she seems way more than okay for what happened to her. Uh, she doesn't seem bothered by it at all. And, and in fact, her reaction was so like lackadaisical towards it that I had my, I had Dr. Bergen take her for a few minutes and talk to her about it. And Frank's like, okay, great. But can, can I get her and we can go home? Dr. Bergen comes in with his perm, very seventies perm. To tell Frank that he does think that Candy may have been traumatized because she is literally having no reaction to this at all. She says she doesn't even remember being at her grandma's house or even seeing her grandmother. So he's like, I would encourage you to try to talk to her, to try to get her to remember what happened. Otherwise, this could cause some real psychological issues with her down the line. So Frank agrees. He takes her home, tucks her in. And as he's tucking her in, you know, he's like, do you want me to tell you a bedtime story? And she doesn't respond. He's like, well, how about you tell me one about what happened with grandma tonight? And of course she doesn't answer. And the phone interrupts him. The phone rings. So he goes down to answer it, but he misses the call and it cuts to, we see that it was actually Nola calling she didn't get the answer, of course. But Dr. Raglan's assistant, Chris, who can we talk about how hot this guy is? Give me a Chris on Frank, like makeout, se- uh, makeout session, like one, very one handsome scene. guy. Yeah. So Raglan comes in and does scold her. Yeah. About you're trying to make a phone call. You know, that's against your, the, you know, your, your treatment. And she just unleashes on him. She's like, Frank is trying to take candy away from me. And you are just enabling it and he tries to calm her down he's like no he's actually trying to be a good father that's all he's trying to do he's trying to protect candy wouldn't isn't that what a good father does and then he leans in and kisses her which was really weird well it's you know the whole shtick of what he's doing is he starts to mirror personalities that were you know important or influential in these patients lives to help them uh, find a tool to like vent their rage and manifest their rage and so he starts to take on the personality traits of her father and this just really causes a, another deep d- dive into her resentment towards her parents which there's clearly a lot of resentment she brings up a lot of issues uh with her mother and her father um and it's it's clearly she had a rather tormented and abusive past with them. 
And she just holds this hostility against her mother and now her father as well for not protecting her against her mother's more uh, what she takes to be her mother's abuse. Yes, yes. She starts to cry and unleash on Dr. Raglan about her father not sticking up for her and basically letting her mother abuse her. So back at back at his home, Frank is being smart and taking some pictures of the bruises on Candy's back so that he can document them for his, you know, custody battle. And then he takes her and they go to pick up the granddad from the airport. So this would be Nola's father, who looks to be about three times the age of the Juliana character. I mean, this man is old, decrepit. He's he's an alcoholic, as we find out. But they pick him up from the airport and he is in town, obviously, to help proceed with the funeral arrangements for his ex-wife. So there's this next scene that comes up in which Frank has a meeting with this character whom we come to find is named Jan Hertog. Um, Jan being a male. Jan is um, a character who is staying at kind of like a nursing home setup. Um, and the reason that Frank is meeting with him is because obviously per his, uh, his lawyer, or, uh, he's looking for a reason to prove that Hal's practices are, you know, can be called out in some way in court to benefit him, you know, it can be proven or misproven or, you know, prove that there's some reason that it is, uh, not a value. And so he meets with this Jan Hertog, who who actually his whole purpose is that he actually wants to legally go after Hal for what he accuses him of having caused um, the cancer that he is suffering from. We find out that Hertog is dying from lymphoma, and he claims that it was actually brought about by Hal's psychoplasmic practices. And he does have this moment because he always has like a scarf around his neck. And he's a moment where he like reveals his throat, and there is this disgusting. What is it? Tumor. It's like a Ugh. tumor. It's growing out of his throat, and it is just. Oh my god! Well, I talk about body horror. I mean, this is just so hard <laughs> to look at. And the guy's always sweating, and his voice is kind of off because you could tell it's like being affected by the the cancer. And it's the scenes with him are kind of hard to watch, just because he looks like he is. His body's going through it, but he's working out, trying to keep in shape, doing whatever he can do to fight it because he really wants to, like I said, legally come down on uh, Hal in some way uh, because he blames him for. Well, yeah, when when I, when Frank first walks into his room, he's what he's rolling around on the floor. He's just rolling back and forth. That's his that's his form of exercise because he says he thinks it might be loosening up the lymphoma. It's clear. Roger and and Frank I think realizes this too that this guy is nuttier than a fruitcake because Frank is listening to this guy talk and you just see his face get more and more deflated as he realizes uh yeah this guy is crazy and he's certainly not going to be taken seriously on any stand in any courtroom because he after a few minutes he's like you know what thanks you know, I'll, I'll, I'd like to help you. I'll be back in touch. And he just gets up and leaves. And he's like, fuck, there goes my big chance to prove that this, this Dr. Raglan's therapy sessions are harmful because nobody's going to believe this guy. But then we do see that Barton, who is Nola's father, the grandfather, shows up at Dr. Raglan's practice and wants to know if Nola knows that her mother died. 
And Dr. Raglan's like, no, I did not tell her because she is going through this therapy right now and it would not be beneficial to her. And of course the father, her father is not happy. He's like, so what are you telling me? I need to, or I need to bury her mother without even telling her that her mother died. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. We also have to point out that he's drunk. Barton is drunk off his ass. And he says, you're a bastard. And if I don't speak to my daughter by tomorrow, I will come and get her. And he gets in his little car and drives away. Yeah, it's a rather tense confrontation. I do find it interesting, you know, obviously, uh, Nola has had her share of struggles and issues since she was a child. I'm curious of how much of the issue, how many of the issues that she voices are actually valid. Like, I'm curious how abusive the mother actually was versus how much of this is her mental state, because obviously she is, she she struggles with a lot. You know, she obviously has quite a lot that she's dealing with. So I'm curious if a lot of this resentment is, is, um, I don't want to say delusional, but heightened, you know, because while the father, um, while the father's obviously an alcoholic, he clearly also really cares about the daughter. You know what I mean? Um, he's expressing great concern for her. I thought the same thing, and I, I'm sure that it's meant for for it to be ambiguous. Like I think the viewer, whatever your personal experience, personal background that you bring into watching this film, you may draw your own conclusions. I, you know, I, I think the the parents in this film are portrayed as very caring. Uh, that grandmother, you know, the way they portrayed her, even the, the few minutes that she was on the, on screen, grandmother, AKA Nola's mother, she seemed very well put together, very sweet. She obviously cared a lot about her, her granddaughter, her interaction with candy was very sweet. So it was just hard for me then to buy the fact that this is the same woman that Nola is saying, you know, beat the shit out of her and threw her down the stairs and poured boiling water on her and all this stuff. But I, and I understand on the flip side of that, I understand you can't judge someone's, whether someone's an abuser or not by physical appearance. I, I totally get that. But this is a, this is a film. We are, we are shown specific things and we make our own interpretations from it. Now, generally most films would very much, if you had a character that was hell bent on saying my mother was abusive to me, then when you meet that particular mother character, there would be, it would be very obvious that she is an abusive character or that the father's an abusive character in this film. It doesn't do that. These, these two Nola's parents, both, even though, like you said, the grandfather or the father is an alcoholic, he seems to care very much about his daughter. So I, I do like that aspect of it. I, you know, are the, were her parents really abusive or if, it, is, if it's, is it something she's manifesting in her mind to maybe, to maybe justify how shitty her relationship is with her husband and her own child? Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, the fact that this title makes us have like this in depth of a conversation is honestly a testament, I would say to a compelling story in general and, uh, and uh, compelling characters. So that alone, the fact that we're, we're not just having like a basic review where we're kind of hitting plot point by plot point. We're really delving deep into like this, the, the psychosis and the overall just uh, wheel works of what makes these characters tick and why they're doing what they're doing. I've got to give this movie credit for that. It really is a very interesting character study. So after Barton leaves uh, Raglan and his, angry fit we get we go back to frank who's picking candy up from her school 
Uh, this is the first time we get introduced fully to the character of Miss Mayer, who is Candy's teacher. And you can tell that Candy and this teacher have a very good relationship. Candy's the only student that's left in, in the classroom and they're just talking and, and playing and, you know, and having a very wonderful little bonding moment when Frank shows up. Candy is like, Miss Mayer just said she was hungry. Can we take her home and feed her? Which I thought was a really cute way to to put that like she's a dog or something, but it's something a kid would say. Right. And Frank is like, yeah, well, I suppose. So he invites Miss Mayer back to their home for dinner. And at the dinner table, they're talking about candy. And Miss Mayer is very adamant. She's like, I think candy really needs a mother figure in her life. You know, at school, she wanted to play mother daughter with me. You know, she obviously is longing for a relationship with her mother that she's just obviously not getting. They are interrupted by a phone call. And of course, it's Nola's father, Barton. He is at the house that uh, Juliana, his ex-wife, was murdered at. And he's like, I am super depressed. I'm being overwhelmed with grief. I need to go get my daughter now. And I want you to come with me. And Frank's like, well, I don't know if that's such a great idea. You need to calm down. He's like, listen, I'm either going to go with you or without you. So Frank's like, okay, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Just wait. Poor Miss Mayer hears that. And I like her reaction. She's like, well, I guess I'm stuck babysitting. (laughs) I like the character of Ruth quite a lot. I think Ruth is, I mean, she's, she's in a way kind of sculpted to be somewhat of a love interest for Frank. But I mean, I don't really think Frank is all that interested in like sparking a new love life. I think he's like attracted to her, but you can tell that he's just kind of overwhelmed with everything going on. So it's hinted that they could possibly have an attraction to each other, but they don't really delve into it. It's not like you have like a makeout sequence or anything. You don't, you just have like the, the beginning of what could be a romance. But I do like that her character, as soon as she realizes just how complicated this shit is, she's like, I need to step the fuck back. Like, I like that about this character's journey. She is sensible. She is not getting involved in this messy, messy relationship. But that happens in a little bit. Overall, though, I, she's not in a, a ton of the movie, but I really like this character's presence and, and the comfort she brings to Candy um, and the concern she has for her. I really like that. I do like, though, that a lot of the, the characters, the adult characters that surround this little girl are very caring towards her, very loving towards her. The Barton, as he's waiting for Frank to pick him up, he's shit faced drunk. He's stumbling around the house. He goes upstairs, collapses in the bed, not before going and like looking at the, the outline of where her dead body was found that's still on the floor. He like gets down and touches it and it causes him to have it a breakdown. So he goes upstairs and, and collapses on the bed and begins crying about his wife. And it's like, oh my God, I miss you so much. I'm so sorry. It's kind of a really t- tugs at your heartstrings, the pain that this old man is going through. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it, it takes uh, its time with his emotional journey because he's a small character. He really, you don't, you wouldn't look at this character and think he needed to have this big moment where he's just mourning. I mean, he literally just walks around the house moping and sulking for a few minutes, weeping over his ex, whom he obviously still has feelings for. Uh, another layer of humanity. Cronenberg's always so good at, at, at developing these very fleshed out characters, even if they're only restricted to a limited amount of time on camera. Um, but it is very sad. I feel for this guy. If I, this man, like I look at this performance, and I think this is someone who is not happy with 
how his life turned out. He misses his ex. He cares about her. Uh, he's drinking to help numb the pain. Like, you get a lot from this scene. You learn a lot about this character. It's such a short amount of time, and there is a pretty effective, I guess, jump scare here as well because the camera pans down as he's laying on the bed, and all of a sudden, a, a little child hand pops out from under the bed. It scared the shit out of me the first time I saw it. Same, same. I mean, oh, my God, I jumped. Yeah, it happened so quickly and unexpectedly. And this creature child gets out from under the bed, grabs a glass like snow globe thing from the counter or from the nightstand immediately. I mean, these things are just brutal. Like there's no like they don't hunt their prey. They don't hesitate. They attack like he grabbed the, the creature, grabs a snow globe, jumps up on the bed and Barton turns around. He realizes something's on the bed with him. And his last word is. Juliana he's drunk you know he's probably half passed out and the thing immediately starts beating him in the fucking head with this glass globe until he's dead I do like that you're right these things do just like start attacking they don't really like have like a hunt mode they just wait for the right opportune time and they strike however they do wait until the person becomes like aware of their presence. Have you noticed that every time these things kill, they do wait until the person is aware that they are about to die. Like the first kill with the grandmother, like the thing waits to strike until she turns around and makes eye contact. Same with uh, Barton. He's laying there. They wait for him to turn his head, turn his attention, and then it attacks and beats him in the head. Uh, And then you have that happen again with another character that dies. There's like a pause before they strike. And I think it's very um, creepy. It seems like intentional. It seems like they almost want the person to know they're about to die before they get killed. Well, Frank arrives at the house and goes upstairs and he finds the dead body of Barton. And immediately the little creature squeals and comes out of the corner and throws the globe at him, but misses and it puts an indention in the wall and it runs into the, you know, runs out of the room. So he tries to follow it. And when he gets into the bathroom, he is, you know, immediately as he pulls the curtain back, nothing's there. But then the thing comes up behind him and, and attacks him, jumps on his back. But then it immediately like he knocks it away and it falls on the ground and starts wheezing for breath and then it it dies. I I had to kind of watch this a couple times to realize what had really happened because I was like, wait, he didn't do anything to this kid. Why is it dying? But it's explained. It's explained. It is. Yeah. And I do appreciate that. Like, you know, the first kill was very, um, the attacker was very much like kept off screen you saw like the the shape of the jacket you saw the like the overall figure but you didn't see any of the face this time by the end of the sequence you have seen the face of the attacker and it's quite clear and you really see just how deformed these things are and it really is a rather creepy visual like it's clearly like a prosthetic mask piece that each one of these children or creatures are wearing but uh, it's it's pretty well done, and it's very off-putting and very uh, just just creepy. It's it's almost like uh, animal-like, canine-like in a way. It's it's very scary. Oh yeah, these things are not pleasant to look at at all. And again, I I, I I'm gonna mention it, but I'm I, I'm getting a lot of um, "Don't Look Now" vibes from the film. Even you know, because remember the ending of "Don't Look Now" when the when the 
thing that Donald Sutherland has been chasing through the canals of Venice finally comes out of the shadow. And it's this hideously deformed little dwarf thing. I still get these vibes. Like when this thing squeals and it steps out of the darkness and it's wearing like like that red coat in this particular scene, it's very much harkens. Don't look now. I think. Oh yeah, definitely. I also, I also like the fact that this film does something that I think is really interesting and in, in that it lets this body of this creature child be taken to a medical examiner's office. Like it's not like it doesn't like dissolve or it's not dragged away or doesn't disappear. They actually get the body and they take it to this medical examiner's office who, who, who is examining it as it lays naked on a gurney. And we are given a list of things that are wrong with this creature. And we were given a whole laundry list of things that are, are wrong with this thing. First of all, it has no teeth. It has a tongue that's too thick for it to actually form words. It has no sex organs. It's asexual. It has no belly button. So the medical examiner points out very clearly that this thing could not have been birthed by a human in a traditional sense because there's no navel. And when one of the police officers is like, how could it, how did it die then? He talks about how it has the, had this like, almost like he describes it as like a gas bag between its shoulders. And that was deflated and that's what must've killed it. It just must've literally suffocated and ran out of gas. So these things are very much like short term lifespan from what I'm gathering. Like these things are not built uh, <laughs> to live for too long. They seem like they're they're really um they're just like worker ants as we come to find, but they're horrifying. And there's a lot of them. You know, and I, I would think that this would well it kind of it actually does make news. I, I was gonna say I would think this would be all over the the news, but it actually does make the news the next day. When they they plant this naked child laying on the gurney, they plant it right on the front page of the paper the next day. But in the meantime, at home, while, while they're at the medical examiner's office and Miss Mayer is still babysitting poor Candace, she gets a call from none other than Nola, who is like, is it? And Nola's like, who's this? And she's like, oh, this is Miss Mayer. And Nola's like, Miss Mayer from the schoolhouse? She's like, yeah. Oh, are you having personal PTA time with my husband? And Miss Mayor's like, I'm not going to answer such questions. And then Nola on the other is like, you're a you're a fucking bitch. You're killing my family. <laughs> oh, there's so much rage and anger in it. I, I love it. I, I love where the story is going at this point. And I love that Ruth is like, uh, absolutely not. I am not getting involved in this nonsense whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that is very key at this point is Nola's, well, her rage. I mean, they actually use the term rage because it's disgust, but her anger, her rage is growing and growing and growing into and manifesting into something massive at this point, you know, and, and it's one thing after another. You have, first she has to tap into the memories of her mother. Then she taps into the memories of her father. Now she finds out that her uh, daughter is possibly being taken away from her. And top of that, she finds out that her uh, ex-husband is trying to basically, in her mind, in her mind, she thinks he's creating another family unit already. And again, this is this is a very important piece of information. All these things are building blocks to what's about to happen. 
Yeah, and he obviously has zero intention of trying to get any sort of relationship or any sexual anything with this teacher. He is not interested. But in her mind, yeah, she is formed right away. Ms. Mayer is trying to steal her man and her child away from her. So we get a, a scene with Nola and Doctor, uh, the, the Doctor, where now he is pretending to be Miss Mayer, and Nola is telling him to stop poisoning my husband, and you're taking advantage of his loneliness. If it weren't for you, he'd be back with me. And she yells at him numerous times to leave him alone. And her rage is definitely increasing each time we see her. Oh, she's getting delusional at this point. You know, she she's definitely getting delusional. And I love the, if you would just leave him alone. Leave him alone! And like when she just loses her shit. When, when, uh, when Nola has these moments where she's able to just go full... I don't want to say batshit because I feel like that's kind of, you know, insensitive. But honestly, like, just go there. Go all the way uh, and really hit these extremes. Uh, Samantha Egger's performance builds into something that I do find rather jaw-dropping. I mean, she's always stunning in this film, first of all. Beautiful. Even though she's, like, kind of losing her shit, she's stunning to look at. But the... uh, specifics of her acting choices and when she chooses to go bigger uh, it feels all the more powerful because it's she's not just losing it all the time uh, time she's restrained but when she does go for these bigger moments there's such a bite to it a snarl to it it's chilling there's something almost like shakespearean about her performance i get heavy like lady macbeth type vibes from her frank uh gets back home and as miss mayor's leaving she tells him you know what your life is a little too complicated for me right now, so fuck off. <laughs> I'll see you at the next open house. I'm like, oh, bitch, that's yeah. a burn. That's such a burn with your sensible hairstyle. Uh- <laughs> well, it is a it is a burn because at the beginning of the film, she chastises him for never coming to open house. Yeah, yeah. but like, I get it. Like, I, I she. If anyone's making this a good, sensible choice thus far in the film, it's this broad. I mean, she the moment she sees any sign of things going awry, she's like, you know what? I'm fucking out. I'm out. I wish you the best. Good luck. He goes upstairs to check on Candy. She's not in her bed, but he does find her cowering in the corner saying that she had a bad dream. And this is when he consoles her in another very touching, caring moment where you can tell that he really cares about this little girl. He tells her, you know what? I know what you saw that night at grandma's house and I know you saw what hurt her, but it can't hurt you anymore because I, it's dead. I saw it myself at the hospital and it's, it can't hurt you and it can't hurt me anymore. And they have a nice little hug together. And the next day, the murder, like I said, the murders are on the front page with the image of that creature child. Uh, Wranglin sees this and he immediately orders Chris to get all of the patients out of the house and send them away. So that's what he does. He loads up all the patients, puts them on the bus. Mike is none too happy. He's bitching and moaning the entire way to the bus. For some reason, Frank does go back to this hospital that Jan is in. And apparently Mike now is there. Um, And he tells Frank that basically Nola is like the queen bee. Now she's all that matters to the doctor. And she is his prize patient because she seems to be the only one that can prove that this psychoplasmic therapy is the real, real, real deal. 
And then he's like, Frank, be my daddy. Be my daddy. Uh, this is a very strange moment. This whole thing. <laughs> first of all, we have a re- I got to point out there's a really badly dubbed ADR sequence here when they're all getting on the bus. I just got to say, like, it was really very obviously dubbed. I was surprised that it made it to the final cut, but here we are. But no, so we get back to the sequence where <laughs> um, F- Frank meets with Mike and Mike gets like a quite a chunk of screen time where he's really allowed to just kind of go full out there. And he does have this whole thing as, as Troy mentioned about Mike, like requesting that Frank will be his daddy, which does feel very homoerotic. I know it's not meant that way, but it feels very <laughs> homoerotic, but this whole sequence is a big turning point in the film because Frank finally becomes aware of exactly like not exactly what's going on. I don't think he knows to the extent of what's happening, but he does learn that that Hal has taken um, Nola as to be his quote unquote queen bee, his primary subject, the one who has had the, the most response to his practice. Basically, what I've gathered from the story is at this point, it, it's become she's become so absorbed in it that um, he's even losing control of what she's able to do with it. Uh, at least that's what I'm taking it as. And obviously Mike and the other patients, Mike at least seems that there's a level of resentment that he has towards Nola because they were all almost, I would dare say, dependent on this treatment, dependent on what it was doing for them. And so this whole like, be my daddy pleading moment he has with Frank is because the form of practice that Hal was reenacting with him and when he would take the form of the father um, and the kind of response it was getting from Mike became almost like addictive. It became uh, all encompassing for him. And so now he's clearly uh, very unsettled and very delusional, pretty much begging for another treatment of this uh, psychoplasmic therapy because it really I apparently had just such a, a powerful, huge effect on him. He even states at one point, I think when he's on the bus, that he can't, he doesn't know how, he, how to function without Dr. Ranglin's help. So this guy has gone full, just he's, he's off the rails, but he is making a lot of sense in what he's saying to Frank, telling him about Candy is the, or not Candy, but Nola is the only one that Dr. Ranglin cares about now because she's the one that has basically had the greatest results so far with this particular therapy. Frank drops Candy off at school the next morning. And we do see this ominous shot of all, of all the kids. As all the kids are going into the school, we do see an ominous shot of these two hulking little children swinging on swings, watching the rest of the children go in. And then they stop swinging and get up very slowly and just start walking toward the building. Oh, it's so creepy. It's such a creepy shot. And as Miss Mayer is getting her class started for the day, Candy's putting her her coat in her little cubby hole. She turns around. She comes face to face with these two mutant children. And of course, she recognizes the faces as something she has seen before. So she's like just freezes in fear. And as Miss Mayer's going around the room helping the kids, we see these things pick up two metal mallets. Why are there metal mallets in a kindergarten classroom? Your guess is as good as mine. But these 
two children creature things pick up the mallets. They walk up to Miss Mayer, stand behind her until she turns around and notices them. And I think this is what you're talking about. They just stare at her yes. for a few seconds before then yeah. they and she stares at them. Yeah, and she's <laughs> like, "What the fuck?" You can tell her face is just like, "What the fuck is this?" And they they look back at her, and then they immediately squeal and start beating her. I mean, they they beat this teacher to death with these hammers in her classroom in front of all these children. One of the things that makes this scene so stand out and shocking is the fact that at, at first, I mean, it's like a normal school day. These two dwarfs manage to blend right in because they're dressed like the other kids. They're about the same size as the other kids. Nobody pays them any mind until they've obviously, you know, abducted uh, Candy, managed to get her out of the room, and then they kill Ruth. And it really is such a, I mean, I, I, I do want to say horrifying setup, because if you think about it, like all of the kids, everyone, they wait for there to be like a hush amongst the crowd. The kids go quiet because they're all loud at first. You know, you're in a classroom. It's a lot of nonsense. And all of a sudden the room falls quiet. And these two little things are just looking at the teacher at Ruth. And then all of a sudden one of them just jumps up on the table and jumps atop her and starts beating her freaking head in. And the kids just all look at her with their jaws dropped just in shock. And this is another example of like the, the reactions from the kids feel very believable and authentic they kind of just stand there like these kids aren't going to run to her aid they're just going to stand there looking stupid at least the one finally thinks the little butterball god we love him he books from the the room and starts screaming for help he finds frank who's still outside talking to one of the, the parents um and he does manage to grab frank's attention and get him to run back into the, the classroom but it really it takes a moment i mean the kids are just kind of stand there like shocked at what they're witnessing. And I think I'll, like one thing that stands out, and this is like so kind of, of course I'm going here, but with all the violence that we have happening within schools, I mean, I don't want to say lately because it's been happening for years and years, but this, at, when this came out, I'm sure this was just a, an absolutely shocking sequence. And it still is. It still is. But it feels very, um, I don't want to say par for the chorus, but it's like, uh, we hear like th we hear about things similar to this on a daily basis now. Like, I do feel slightly numb to it, uh, but it is a really an expertly crafted scene. It's a, a very, very effective sequence. This was one of the scenes I was talking about when we started this podcast that I think is one of the more memorable scenes from the film that definitely sticks with you. And if, you've, if you saw this film like in the 80s, you know, it came out in 79. So if you saw it in the 80s, early 90s as a child, I guarantee you this scene stuck with you. It's horrifying. And, and I think what makes it even more terrifying is the kids' reactions seem so authentic. And they're as they're literally watching their teacher be bludgeoned to death by these two who they think are probably kids themselves. Because even when the little boy runs out, what does he say? He's like, the bad kids, they're hurting Miss Mayer. So these kids think they're watching two other kids kill their teacher. And, you know, it just shows, yeah, I mean, the violence in school, it's definitely a little bit of ahead of its time in that regard, how easily it just showed that these two things were able to get into this school and get into this classroom just because they blended in. But yeah, so Frank comes and runs back into the school and finds poor Ruth not looking too great. Her head is bashed in, lying on the floor of her classroom dead. I thought this reveal was... A, very sad. I mean, honestly, like, it, it, this poor woman did absolutely nothing wrong. 
like if anything, she's trying to, you know, take care of one of the children. Uh, so I give her credit as a teacher for going above and beyond. But then to have such a violent death sequence in the reveal, it's her body. It looks rough. I mean, this poor gal has been through it. I felt something like when, when she was killed, I felt quite horrible for her. Well, you know, it had to be a painful death and it just looks very realistic. And he, in fact, he covers her face up with a sheet of, of paper so that, you know, they don't have to, the kids don't have to see it anymore. But then what does he do? He turns around and runs out of the classroom and leaves all the kids in there with this dead body so that he can find candy because he notices candy is, is missing. We cut to Ranglin waking Nola up, asking her how she's feeling. She's like, oh, I feel great. He's like, do you want to have another session regarding Miss Mayer? And ominously, she replies, no, I don't. He's like, why? And she says to him, well, because I don't feel threatened by her anymore. Definitely giving vibes that she perhaps orchestrated what happened or knew what happened. I do like this next scene of the creature dwarf children walking candy down the street. They're on both sides of her holding her hand and they're all wearing the same little snowsuit. Get up. Nobody notices. I love that they took the time to show that. Well, yeah, yeah, because candy does disappear. So these things basically take her back to Wranglin's place so that she can be with or near her, her mother. Um, you've got this moment where Frank is looking at a missing children's report in the newspaper. So it's obvious that some time has gone by at this point, at least a couple of days, because uh, it's it's a, a missing children's report for Candace. So um, he hears a knock at the door and it's Mike who shows up and he's he's pretty much pleading for assistance. He's looking for shelter and he discloses that he's aware of, of where Candace is being kept and and Nola's basically Nola's whereabouts where she's located within the premises of uh Wranglin's property um and he 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 basically tells him to go look in for the shed on the property that she's basically kept within there and that's where she's kept with the children he makes it clear that he is one of the patients at this clinic is aware that she is keeping these children like people are seemingly aware of these things that they exist yeah he says that they're the kids that she is taking care of they're in the attic of the shed so frank gets in his car and drives immediately out to the doctor's place he parks so that he can't be seen he sneaks to the barn through the woods as wranglin comes out of the barn he immediately attacks him wranglin pulls a gun on him frank's like no listen Ruth Mary was killed and I know that these, whatever these are, they brought candy here and he's like, I'm going to go get her. And, and he's like, Frank, no, they will kill you if you go in and try to take candy. And Frank is like, what are you talking about? What are they? What do you, what do you know? And Wranglin begins to tell her or to tell Frank that they are in a essence, they are Nola's children, but they have been produced basically as physical manifestations of her rage and anger. Each time she gets angry or gets into a rage, they actually act out her rage and anger for her. Basically, this procedure that he's been doing this entire time 
has allowed her to create physical manifestations of her rage. Because again, it's all about, you know, it was all about using your body and, and exerting your body to get the rage, to get past your rage, to get the rage out of you. Well, it certainly did with Nola because she is producing these deformed children, children of her rage. She's physically manifesting them. I really like where the story goes. And I, one thing I, I appreciate is, you know, and again, in typical Cronenberg fashion, he leaves breadcrumbs, but he never gives you the whole cookie. But if you sit here and you think of some of the plot points that have been handed out, like early on in the film, there's the scene where uh, Julianne and Candace are going through the photos and the plot point is dropped that ever since she was a child, Nola has been having uh, to see doctors because of that mysterious skin issue she has. So is this something that she has always been showing signs of? And then once she started this, this kind of therapy treatment uh, with Raglan that it just caused it to manifest to, to, to at a whole other level. You get what I mean? Like, is this something that's always been kind of buried and suppressed and he just triggered it and now it's kind of losing control. It's just become its own thing, you know? Yeah, that's exactly how I feel, particularly. I mean, I think that's the case, particularly with how the film ends, the last shot of the film, which we're getting to here pretty quick. Ranglin says, if you go into there and talk to Nola and be nice to her, pretend that you want her back, keep her calm, do not get her mad, I will go upstairs and I will get candy. But the second that you get her mad and that she gets upset, he says to Frank, that's going to be a problem, not just for me, but for all of us. So please be nice to her. One thing I really appreciate with the Raglan character is that, you know, for a good chunk of the film, he's almost treated as an as an antagonist. Like he's he's very much. I don't want to say to blame, but a big cause of why things get as bad as they do. Um, but he, he takes accountability and I appreciate that. And at this point moving forward, it's not like he's, this could easily have been something where he's like, I'm going to help. And then he like actually is like part of the problem. Like he like is like, Oh, my plan it's unfolding. Like it could have been like one of those situations, you know? Uh, but instead he's true to his word. He actually does step up to the plate. He is concerned about candy. Uh, and he does want to help Frank and try to set things right. And I really like that they uh, chose to let this character have that kind of a journey and that kind of an arc. Uh, because you find yourself kind of rooting for several characters at the end of the film. This finale, and I think a good amount of the time I want to spend, on, if on anything, it's on the final 10, 15 minutes of the movie. You know, we've talked about movies before that the finale has sputtered and died. We've talked about movies before where the finale has been a definitive aspect of what makes the film work. And luckily for this film, I would dare say it's the latter here. I think while this film is an intriguing and interesting and uh, overall intense piece of art, and I really enjoy watching it, when it gets to the finale, this film kicks it into high gear and goes places it hasn't opted to go for the rest of the movie it really kicks up the pace raises the stakes and takes things to a whole other level and i really 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 enjoy the last final chunk of this film yeah i'm going to agree with you about the regular character i do like that they actually make him almost a sympathetic character at this point i buy that he did never he never had 
negative evil intentions. I think he thought he was truly helping these people. Um, and it wasn't until he realized what he's unleashed that he realizes, oh shit, I need to ran this in. I need to do what I can to remedy this. And he is really, really serious about getting candy back. Yeah. He's not up to, he's not up to any, any, no good. He's actually trying to help and trying to overcome this situation. So he sends Frank in to talk to Nola. She's there all sprawled out on the floor in this beautiful white gown, her hair looking, you know, great. Uh, and he proceeds to tr try to charm her back. He tells her, you know, you are the only woman for me. You are the only person I want to be with. And she's like, are you sure? He's like, absolutely. And she's like, are you sure that you can handle me? Because I'm a very, very special person. And, you know, she's being very like, what is, what is even the word? Like dramatic, overly confident and cocky towards him. And he's like, yes, I, I, I want to do whatever you want to do. I want to go with you anywhere you want to go. And she's like, oh, you do, do you? He's like, yes. And then she's like, okay, then look. And she pulls up her dress and there is a, oh, like a cocoon bag. What is it, Roger? It's like a cocoon. It's like a, it's an exterior womb. Yes. That is literally like hanging off of her body from like a pouch. It looks like something like a marsupial. Embryotic sack just see. hanging there. Yes. Yeah. It's fucking disgusting. And it's honestly like, it's so shocking if you haven't seen the movie before. And when it, when this moment hits, it really is one of those moments that kind of takes your breath away almost because it's so like, oh my God, this is the last fucking thing I expected. Like I expected her to raise the gown and have, have those little things just come running out. No, yeah, exactly. But you know, <laughs> but no, it's not that. It also, all. you know, this whole moment also reminds me of another film we covered and that's Possession. The reveal in possession when you actually realize what is going on in that film, it's very similar. Because, and they, the films actually play with a similar theme, right? Relationship issues. Uh, and then there's a huge reveal in possession where you're like, what the fuck? The same thing here with this embryonic sack. Not only is it bad enough that you have to see this hanging from her vagina area, she actually lifts it up and fucking bites into it. Oh my God, this and oh. proceeds to rip, rip it open with her teeth and pulls the fetus out of it. This bloodied fetus covered in embryonic fluids and blood. And she begins licking it clean like a cat licking its it kitten. Is truly disgusting. And she is just reveling in it. She's like, uh, she is just reveling, <laughs> licking the thing and licking its head, and he is just looking on and it is fucking one of disgust. the more repulsive visuals I can think of uh, overall. I mean, I'm going to say it. To be honest, I can't think of a lot of movies that go there and do something this far out. Um, and we've always known that Cronenberg, when it comes down to it, loves body horror more than anything. And this is truly some just disgusting body horror imagery i gotta give frank credit he is he goes into this cool as a cucumber first of all i mean good on him that he can strut in there and tell this crazy woman that he wants to get back with her you know this is a good father who's really pulling out all the stops trying to save his daughter i respect that but i mean when he sees this he just cannot maintain composure anymore and i get fucking why because when she rips the fucking sack off that thing and starts lapping it it's like 
again, I can't, I really cannot compare this movie, this specific moment to anything. Uh, I, I get your comparison to possession, I, the shock factor. Absolutely. But it is still very unique in what it's doing. And it is, it's just grotesque. It's so grotesque. Well, and yeah, and he can't help but look, be disgusted at it. And when she notices this, she gets angry at him. She's like, I love her reaction here, Troy. Oh, I know. I mean, well, she's like, she's like, you're repulsed by me. You're disgusted by me. Like, she's like just calling him out. It's not even that she's not, it doesn't even sound angry. She's just like, this is a fact. You are obviously disgusted. You're a liar. And I'm like, get it, bitch. Like, I know you're the bad guy, but get it, girl. Well, she, <laughs> she yeah, not at first. She's very like casual about it, but then she just gets, it gets her angrier and angrier until she like screams at him. Uh, and in the meantime, poor Dr. Wrangling is upstairs. He actually, the all he goes up to the attic and we see that these things are all up there in like bunk beds, like three, four to a bunk bed and they're sleeping. So he's able to go and find candy and he's, he gets her and is carrying her away. But downstairs, she is getting more and more angry at the thought that he is repulsed by her. And she actually screams at him. Like, she's like, you are a liar. And as she is, her rage is building. What happens? All of the fucking creatures upstairs wake up. They attack Wranglin as he's carrying poor Candy out of the room. And he he gets he puts her down. He's like, you need to run. Run to your dad. But all these things, there's how many of them? Do you think a dozen of them? Oh, there's quite a few of them. Yeah, I mean, at least. They jump on him. He is able to shoot a bunch of them. But, I mean, they get the best of them. You can't. I mean, when there's t- 12 things hanging, 12 little dwarf children jumping on you and pulling you to the ground, you're, you're going to be overpowered. I'm a fan of mob kills. I think it's because I really love zombie movies. So I love sequences where people are just overwhelmed or overpowered and it's like horrifically violent. And this scene really like pops to me in the sense of uh, when I think of like truly terrifying scenarios, he just is simply overwhelmed. Uh, it, it, it's there's there's no way he could he could defend himself against all of them, even though they're small, they're fucking mighty. But he does get he does manage to shoot a few of them, and and the shots of the few creatures getting shot are actually very violent. Um, and you see like the 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 bullets like tearing through them and everything, and uh, they're obviously played by children because these things are very tiny. So it is like a really like shocking visual of seeing these things getting mowed down getting shot uh but overall this kill shot as candy watches on wide-eyed and terrified uh this whole sequence of him just eventually getting overpowered is is very terrifying to me it is and well then it then then they turn their attention to her after they kill him they turn their attention to her and she has the common sense to actually run into a little room and shut the door like a closet yeah but what leads to this troy i mean i the dialogue that is coming from downstairs with Nola when she's literally saying to Frank, I will kill Candace before I let you have her. Like she literally says that she says, I will kill her before I let you have my daughter. And this is, I think really just showing how far gone she is, but I do find that to be chilling that whole line from her, that series of lines. Um, And I'm happy that Candy does finally do something. She snaps to it and she manages to bolt herself in that little room because you're right. The kid is for the most part, she's incapable of defending herself, but she finally does react and she does 
something to, to protect herself. Um, and it does cause for what I think is one of the most terrifying aspects of the buildup and the climax in general, which is the sequence of those things busting through the door. The things busting through the door is horrifying. And what makes it, what cements the deal for me is her reaction, the little actress's reaction. Now, I, I, I did make a statement earlier on that I thought she, I didn't say she was bland. I wanted to get more from her. But goddamn her performance here. This child looks fucking terrified. These little hands are busting through the door, grabbing her, pulling her hair. They're ripping her little shirt off. You see, I mean, it's, it's pretty fucking intense. Oh, they're smearing blood all over her because from, from having just killed, um, you know, she did just watch the uh, doctor get beat to death and they're covered in his blood. So she's covered. Now she's covered in his blood. She's crying. There's tears running down her face and she's just shrieking and shrieking and trying to keep the door from busting in. Like she's leaning against it and you're like this poor little baby. She's just, she, she in no way can defend herself. It's so sad. Well, all, yeah, all the stuff that's happened to this poor little girl in the span of, you know, however long this film has taken. I mean, this little girl is going to be fucked up. But I, you know, he hears, Frank hears Candy screaming and he's like, I will kill you if you don't call them off. And she's just laughing at him. And what's he do? He starts choking her and he literally chokes the bitch to death. I don't want to say it's anticlimactic because it's a rather dramatic concept of, you know, choking your lover, your ex-lover to death. Well, I mean, she doesn't, what I don't like is she doesn't really fight back. You know, she just kind of literally just lays there and lets him choke her to death. But I almost took it, Troy, that she wanted that. She even says, do it, kill me, kill me, because I think she knows. Yeah, I thought that for a minute too, but wouldn't these things like, you would think these things would, or a couple of them would kind of get wind of what's going on since they have this strong emotional connection with her and like come downstairs and try to fight him off because they're killing, they're basically killing her, their mother, which is their lifeline. When she dies, they die, but he, he's able to choke her. Yeah. This whole choking thing is, is probably the most bland part of the film. It just happens so quickly. Uh, it's your very cliched choking where it literally takes her about 15 seconds to die. When we know in real life, it's going to take a lot more than that. Uh, she just dies. Um, and he's able to go upstairs and all of the things are dead now because their mother died. Their lifeline died. They're all laying on the floor in a pile. He's able to get candy. He takes her out to the car, puts her in and they're, they're driving away. And poor candy is just catatoast. <laughs> You know, poor little thing. But the final shot of the movie is a zoom in on Candy as she's sitting in the passenger side, terrified, crying. But we get a very close up of her arm. And on her arm, we see that there are two blistery bumps on her arm, suggesting that she has the exact same condition that her mother did. And then the film ends. There is a moment leading up towards this whole final, uh, the whole finale, um, uh, the final shots of the movie. Uh, there's this little moment where, uh, you know, he's walking up to that little room to find uh, Candy uh, locked inside. And he's walking through all the bodies. He opens the door and he finds her like tucked in the corner crying. And he grabs her and he like, he lifts her face up and looks at her. And uh, again, this kid's acting here is just, heart heart wrenching. I mean, I really think it, it's rather 
superb, her performance, because he looks into her eyes and they're just filled with tears and her face is bright red with exhaustion. I mean, it, it really looks believable. And yeah, and then you've got this whole final idea that, you know, she's got the same the same issue that her mother had. And um, when you think of the whole, the story that's been told here and the whole idea of basically the mother had to be killed to kind of put her demons to rest, her demons, literally literal demons in this film creatures. Um, but she, you know, her, her mental trauma uh, caused her to unleash her demons on other people. Um, and then it, when she died, they died with her. However, now her daughter, who is, uh, her, you know, her her own DNA, you know, her her spawn, uh, is obviously going to carry some of this uh, internalized trauma with her. This mental illness and in, in the form of the physical illness in this film of these blisters. But um, it, it represents so much of, of what is being passed on, what that represents, what this child is going to carry with her. And it really got, I mean, like, what a deep finale. Like, when you really think of, even if the, even with the choking being kind of lame, still what was represented there, the story that's being told, again, it makes a lot of sense that he went through such a, a devastating trauma himself because this finale is... Um, it's loaded. It is loaded with exposition. It is loaded with uh, real, relatable humanity, even though it's, a, it's an absurd take on it in some ways, very fantastical. There's so much to unpack there uh, that we really can relate to. A lot of people, I think, can really understand, comprehend, and relate uh, to this story. I mean, the, th- the themes that you can pull from this film and study and, and discuss are are plentiful that's for sure i mean you talk about you know the whole idea you know the the whole uh stereotype and cliche that is often portrayed uh, of females having like uncontrollable rage uh and then how it's portrayed in this film um it's it's quite intriguing and it, it definitely is a film that makes a deep statement about uh, about relationship and about how you handle grief and how you handle anger and past traumas that happen to you and how you how you manifest that stuff in your life and how you deal with it. I mean, I, there's so many, so much, so many things you could you could pull from this film and and, and use when you're t- talking about particular thematic elements that pop up through literature on a continuous basis. I think this one definitely has all of them many of them embedded in there. It's just a very interesting film. The performances are top notch. I do love the end, just how we're left to basically believe that now little Candace is going to have the same issue. Now, hopefully, you know, hopefully she'll be okay because there's no doctor, you know, that's probably going to force her to manifest this rage into a physical presence. But, um, I mean, I, I, I can't say enough about this film. This film is one that you literally could have a discussion probably for hours and hours about all the different interpretations you can pull and, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's classic Cronenberg. Uh, it stands as probably one of his better films, particularly from this time period. You know, he did a rabid, which is good, which is good. I, I think this one edges out rabid just because of the 
subject matter and the themes that it deals with and how it presents them. Um, but I mean, he is definitely a master of horror that needs to be recognized way more than he is. And I love that he is still working and he is getting tons of, of praise and, and controversy for his new film, which I can't wait to see because it has, you know, we have Kristen Stewart fresh off an Oscar nomination appearing in a Cronenberg film. So just excited. But The Brood, folks, if you've never seen it or you have seen it, let us know your thoughts. Let us know your interpretations. Yeah, please, please. Because honestly, this is a movie that, as we said at the beginning of this, you know, it, it deserves multiple watches um, to really dissect what all is at play here. But it really is just a very uh, s- smartly written and, and uh, expertly crafted piece of cinema. And it really opts to go there a lot of horror movies are just giving you baseline horror for the sake of gore and the sake of kills and the sake of the violence and that's really it and i love movies like that i love being a popcorn flick i'll never complain about it but when a movie is this well thought out and has this much of a message behind it and goes through such a journey to tell that story uh, that that certainly needs to be acknowledged and lauded and celebrated and applauded. And I, I really think that this is a movie that shows a, a master of the craft at his finest. And the fact that he's still creating to this day is delicious. I, I think we're so lucky to receive more from this man while he's still with us. I, I hope this is not going to be the last of it, Crimes of the Future, and I can't wait to see it because I'll say this, whether or not I love every film he makes, every film he makes does manage to make me feel something. And and it makes me think. And, and I appreciate that. And I respect that. So yeah, I really can't wait to see uh, Crimes of the Future. And, and hopefully there will be more coming from him after that as well. You know, I I thought about this now that we're talking about Cronenberg, but you know, we just we did a Patreon episode where we discussed some of horror remakes that we thought were great or outdid the original, and we totally missed one directed by Cronenberg, and that's The Fly. Oh gosh, how did we not touch on that? I know. Yeah. Well, we're giving you your, your The Fly. We're adding that to our list. So go join our Patreon to hear our other choices, but I totally, you know, Cronenberg's The Fly is a master piece of a body horror cinema it's a classic check it out but yeah so that's the brood let us know your thoughts and we could talk about this film and try to interpret this film for hours but we are you know going to leave you guys to hopefully comment on our this episode and our posts on this episode with your thoughts and i will briefly briefly before we let you go uh discuss our choice for next week we are going from one killer kid quote unquote We'll say they're killer kids in this film. Uh, one killer killed one killer kid film to another. And so we're kind of sticking with a the theme and we are going to cover the 1980 batshit crazy low budget film full of charm, full of a lot of other things too, called the children. And you know which one I'm talking about. You know which one I'm exactly talking about. The kids with their hands outstretched that want to give you a big old hug. That is our next episode, folks. So, yeah. Are you excited about that, Roger? Uh, Troy, you know that I hate children. (laughs) Uh, But you know how I feel about killer kids. They scare the fucking shit out of me. However, I would not. 
I would not be hesitant to kill one. If I knew a kid was rabid or zombified or possessed, I mean, I'm, I, as long as I know that this kid is under some kind of demonic influence and I've got to do what I got to do to defend myself, you know what? I say treat all villains as equals, even if they come in the form of a child. And this film would be a perfect example. Exactly. And we'll we're, we'll have a lot to talk about in that regard for next week. But guys, that is The Brood. Join us next week for the children. Again, check out our Patreon. And if you're in so, if you want to be kind to us during Pride Month to, to two gays, go to Apple Podcasts and hit that little five-star review rating button and submit it. That would mean the world to us as well. And it's a it's a very... Uh, simple, easy, free way that you can support us. So with that said, guys, have a good evening. Have a good first week of June Pride Month. Be wary of any children that are trying to hug you. And we will talk to you next week. We'll talk to you next week. Go have some fun at Pride if that is what's happening in your city like it's happening in mine. This weekend is the weekend in Cleveland, Ohio. So hopefully, if you're in my area, I'll see you there. And if not, regardless of where you are, if it's your Pride weekend, go celebrate and spread the love. You deserve a weekend to be out amongst your peers and your people. And I hope you just have an amazing start to your Pride month. Yes, me too. And then go watch the children so that you can listen to the next episode. Yes, absolutely. Good night. Good night. (laughs) 